Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and if you've been tuning into this podcast and enjoying our content, then I have a recommendation for you because the Bad Lab is starting a new uh, podcast called Dragon Road, uh, which is hosted by Arif Rafiq. Um, its first season is out uh, with the first episode out this week. Um, and so you can go and enjoy that discussion on Dragon Road, which covers the growing influence of China around the world with a specific focus on the Belt and Road Initiative. So the link is down below in the description. You can put in uh, Dragon Road in your favorite podcast platform and subscribe over there. And I thoroughly and I really think that you will enjoy uh, these discussions that Arif has had over the last few weeks. Um, and with that, we start with our episode today. Uh, we're joined by Halima Iqbal, who is CEO and co-founder of Oran. Oran is a collaborative platform for group savings and trying to boost financial inclusion, particularly as it relates to women in the country. Halima graduated from the University of Waterloo. She started her career in, in investment banking, working at TD Securities, uh, moved on, did consulting work on fintech products, uh, started her own uh, startup called Meal Surfers, and she's a certified chef. Um, and then moved to Pakistan in 2017. So she's one of those startup founders who's worked abroad, moved back to Pakistan, is now trying to solve a major, major challenge that the country has, which is financial inclusion. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Halima to understand uh, what Oran is all about and how she sees the fintech and startup ecosystem in the country. So with that, Halima, thank you so much for taking out the time and welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited for this conversation. So let's let's start with Oran. Like, help us understand uh, where did the idea come from? What Oran is all about, and what's it's been like um, having a financial startup in Pakistan trying to solve this financial inclusion challenge in the country. Great. So Oran actually. Um, so when I moved back uh, from from um, North America late two thousand seventeen, early two thousand eighteen. One of the few things that were very obvious that women for finance was very very limited. Um, I, as a as a consumer to finance, had a really hard time opening up just basic bank accounts. When I started looking around, what was happening, um, I realized I was not the only one. There are 50 million adult women like me out there. Um, not having access to bank account, and then obviously not having um, more sophisticated uh, formal financial products, which led to me uh, led led to um, a research. Uh, my my co-founder at that time, Farvata Pal, had also moved back um, from Spain after doing her MBA from Isare. Her background is in design from uh, from Rhode Island School of Design in the U.S. And she was also looking at solving for um, and really understanding the space a little more. So together we started researching. And what we found out that while the formal economy is not necessarily catering to the large majority of the population, there's an informal economy that exists, um, which banks through your committees or ROSCAs. And with a sample size of about 4,000 people, we realized that 41% of the Pakistani population actually engages in these committees, um, which was an, actually a very exciting um, piece of information that we found. And then we started really understanding the operational modalities of it and the relationship dynamic within these committees and why they were so prevalent, right? Like, 
It provides that access to liquidity. It is also um, Sharia compliant, which sits really well with the religious sensitivities of large majority of the population. And it provides um, that forced budgeting tool to, to, to people, and it is gender inclusive. Um, where women take part in these committees 1.3 times more than men. So all these things that we are finding out and unraveling while doing our research led us to find a business opportunity in terms of if we were to take something that's so embedded in the lives of a common person, how does that translate into when there is a technology intervention? So we, we, started, we started experimenting with what the product would look like. How do, you, how do you take something that has existed in the market for so many years and try to digitize it and try to cater to a market um, that might have not necessarily seen a product like this before? Um, so that's really how Oran started. I think it was, it was not just to solve for my personal pain points in terms of accessing finance, but also looking at from a broader perspective and finding that finance is not necessarily, until today, we're, we're, we're the only women first FinTech in Pakistan, finance is not necessarily on a broader level being looked at it from a gender perspective, which was extremely important for us because we make up half of this country's population. Yeah, and I think statistically as well, right, in terms of access to bank accounts, access to mobile phones, uh, women are far, there's a big gender divide uh, or gap in Pakistan at this, even at this point in time, right? And frequently, if I'm on social media, uh, every other week or so, you will see some thread about how banking is terrible in Pakistan, especially for women, right? You need pay slips and you need guardian certificates, like, you know, all sorts of things that are just like, why are these onerous regulations there in the system? Why can't you just walk into a bank? Like I've been in the United States since 2007. I came here as a student. I walked into a bank and had a bank account in 15 minutes, right? It's hard uh, doing yeah. the same thing in Pakistan. And it's just such a big, big challenge. Um, so what um, when you looked at digitizing this experience and bringing these women on board or bringing people on board into committees um, through a digital experience, how does it work? Because my understanding of committees and Roscas is that, you know, you typically partner with or get together with extended friends and family. There is this local community trust uh, that's in, in the process built in. Um, so how does Uran approach this uh, sector and say, you know what, we can offer something better through a digital experience? Mm -hmm. So the audience that we cater to, we spent a lot of time understanding the customer and trying to figure out what is actually the customer need, right? Um, when a woman is trying to raise capital for herself and if she's going down the route of um, doing neighborhood committees, her financial health is always dependent on the social network or the geographical location she belongs to, right? And that was, that was an interesting insight for us to say that, okay, if these women are aspirational, they are your prime middle income to lower middle income audience, which is looking, which is looking for that um, little access to capital to then be able to take control of their financial futures. And that, that was a really interesting opportunity for us to say that if, if we were to digitally onboard them, what is that experience going to look like? And how do you bridge that 
gap in terms of trust as well, right? One of the reasons why people are not willing to come into the formal economy other than the formal economy not serving them is that trust deficit. So we take, um, we started learning with the customer itself and realized that she actually wants to be able to come on board and be slightly anonymous in terms of raising that capital and have that agency authority and um, autonomy over her finances. That's why bridging that gap and building a brand that is more lifestyle related rather than just pure financial services. So what is the language she's speaking? What is, um, what is the time that she's available at? What are the different concepts that she understand and not understand? So understanding that customer persona, we felt was really important in terms of building that trust with the customer who then comes in digitally and onboards herself to be able to take um, the committees of her choice. So it could be anything from 2000 rupees to up to 10,000 rupees, 20,000 rupees, whatever her ability is. So from a timeline perspective, then how does yours, I, I remember reading and correct me if I am wrong or things have changed, but your offering is about 10 months or so or less than a year. Um, and then there is obviously in a country like Pakistan, long-term committees I view because of the high inflation rates in the country are a loss-making thing for anyone to invest or save in because by the time you get your money back, the real purchasing power has declined. 10 months does help with that to a certain extent, but you know, it still is something that you know, people are losing out real purchasing power. So from your point of view, when you've built that trust, A, how does that operate over 10 months and how do you make that situation work for somebody in terms of how does the cash uh, get disseminated, et cetera? But B, now that you build that trust, like what's next? Like in terms of financial literacy, more sophisticated savings instruments, whether they are career compliant or not, again, there's an offering to be made there. How are you thinking about making that trust as the foundational element of a much longer and much more sophisticated financial journey for those that are saving with you? So we want to be able to build a new bank, um, a women first new bank, catering to the requirements um, in the ways that women want to be catered to without having too many barriers to entry. Um, so that's that's the plan. And ROSCA so our committees serve as that launch pad or, or the entry point into it. Um, so that's really how we see it as well. Um, and in terms of in terms of bridging the gap and um, her coming in, the the she is not always going to be looking for earlier um, committees, right? Her life revolves around committees, and there's a life event attached to why she wants to be able to raise capital. So whether it is for her medical treatments, travel, her own wedding, her education, whatever that reason might be, but she is thinking ahead, and we're providing her with that platform to make that budgeting activity a lot easier for her and that's why that's why this this 10 month cycle while yes they're they're in the informal setting they're like uh, things can go up to like 30 40 months um where the value of the money gets beaten up by inflation we try to keep it in in, in a less than a year tenure so that she also sees sight of the capital that she's raising, right? 
and she is then starting to think okay agar main 10 mahine ke liye dal rahi hu for i'm putting it for 10 months um what are the options in terms of sophisticated products that i can eventually take on as well so now she's becoming slightly more aware of the options that she has and what all can she do with um the the capital that she raises and it's not always based on consumption it is slowly and gradually moving on to wealth building products as well and that's really how we see the extension of um the base happening with taking what the roscos of the committee serve as as the baseline and then building on top of it yeah it's almost like you know you said early on that you found that a high proportion of these women were actually saving through these roscos or committees and it's one of those things that they have different targets right either somebody's wedding their child's wedding college education school graduation healthcare parents retirement supplies etc and it's almost like the market does not need their needs and demands so informally they've gone out and come together as communities as networks to find out ways in their own way to solve for those challenges and that is just the foundation right and there's a lot more that can yeah. be done through that absolutely from from the question i had was from your point of view as you've engaged with these people and tried to offer them the service um what are some things that have surprised you that you know you're like you know when you started you assumed that the informal market or these women approach their savings a certain way and now you look back and say okay i've done work in this industry for a number of years and did not anticipate that this is how people actually approach how they think about building wealth or saving their capital i mean one of the things that is very very obvious was um women's requirement for capital or accessing finance is no different than a man's they need savings they need insurance they need credit um so it's not about like their need their, their requirements are any different it is how she's going to go utilize it is going to be slightly different but also she's always going to put um the 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 family first and then herself and that was that was a bit interesting insight for her cuz finance is largely looked as individualistic and when you play that social social part in it and that's why the committee's structure works so beautifully for women is because of the social nature of them so that was that was one of the things that was um surprising to us the other thing is she's competitive when it comes to building her financial identity or um being able to compete in terms of her payment behavior with the peers that she might not even know um but the fact that she's found this platform where which validates her payment behavior and transaction history she is competitive um and that was that was very very surprising for us um and overall generally what we also realized that women are better payers than men and then we started researching and looking at the a lot of literature that's available that supports this as well right like women are much better payers of credit than men are they're not going to go gamble away or they're not going to go gamble drugs or alcohol <laughs> to you know drown their sorrows and that they're going to come back and pay exactly. that money and but add some color to this competitive thing i'm curious to understand more about in what sense are they competitive like what are some things that you've seen that you're yeah. like oh my god like this person is super competitive 
So one of the things that we do is that in terms of um, rewarding a good behavior um, when it comes to social settings, social finance, uh, we put out like if you are a good parent, if you're paying on time, you get a star, right? Um, instead of like showing her a number of a credit history or whatever, but she will probably not understand and she would not even want to understand. So we gamify that and we give her a star for every, every good action that she takes. And she wants that. She wants to be able to come first every month um, or be, be on the top tier of um, the payment score, which is very exciting to see that even in a setting where she is, A, she does not know anybody, but the fact that she's coming and saying that the transaction that was predominantly done by my male counterpart, I am doing that and I'm getting rewarded for that, um, gives her that sense of financial empowerment. So she's then able to make her financial decisions without the permission of her male counterpart, right? Initially when people would come in and like, okay, we're gonna ask our husbands or fathers or brothers about it first. Now she's coming in and she's like, we can make this decision ourselves. Um, and that shift, to be able to see that shift happening um, is, is very exciting. Um, and I think it comes from giving them the kind of financial literacy that we provide through the platform and market access to then slowly but surely being able to change the behavior and um, getting her more comfortable um, into into the digital financial services world without her being like intimidated by um, what was happening with finance and the concepts around it, et cetera. We've had um, a pandemic globally. Um, in Pakistan in particular, what's been tragic is the high rate of inflation and the erosion that has done in terms of purchasing power and savings capacity for households. How have you seen behavior shift on Iran with these savers who are combating probably a whole host of issues, health, economic, high inflation, maybe some loved ones have lost jobs, etc. So have you seen any noticeable differences or changes that have happened over the last 12 to 18 months that you look at and say, you know what, this is primarily a pandemic induced shift that has happened in the market? I think from our perspective, um, the, the shift on, a, on digital uptake of digital financial services, like digital transactions, we saw a ridiculously high rate of that shift happening. The other thing that was very interesting to see was that that whole concept of savings that we all struggle with and want to be able to save, that just got accelerated. People started understanding the importance of having an emergency fund. Um, and having some pool of capital set aside for economic crisis that can come anytime now, right? Um, so that 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 willingness um, to then be able to say that hey, I things are we don't know what's going to happen, but we need a little bit of a pool of capital set aside for emergency purposes, whatever that emergency might be, right? And irrespective of people losing their jobs, they've been able to contribute little, little, little to then be able to build that emergency fund or some form and shape of pool of capital to, um, to, to be then able to cater to any kind of 
economic crisis that could come on onto into their lives so that shift in terms of the importance of savings that we've been um, championing for um just saw a very high growth and shift um during this pandemic which was a very exciting like they, while we we understand the credit requirements was also increased but the the mindset also shifted that it's if i am taking too much credit it will actually come and hurt me so i need to start thinking about from bare minimum start with having some cash around and then think about how do i build my wealth i think that's great right from your perspective it's like credit demand went up which means there's obviously more customers coming in but as they think about having this sort of risk free asset lying around and risk free instruments that's great for you to then offer complementary products to this customer base that base that now trusts you um which makes me wonder like what's next you talked about having you know having a bank that provides more sophisticated services but when you look at sort of the next 12 to 18 months um we look at or i've read about fintechs worked with a couple of them myself they talk about all sorts of things like credit scores and profit pools and consumer durable financing and education funds all of, all of that but it's a whole lot of things but most of the time i i find it curious that there's no prioritization in terms of you know looking at what the customer need is where your customer is in terms of their own maturity their own life uh needs so where are you looking at in terms of you know you've got the roscas you've got the committees and now you have a trusted relationship and what do you want to offer to your customers next to make sure that not only can oran scale up but they can also go to the next level in terms of their overall financial journey i think the first thing for us is using using this platform to then finance formally financially include these people right like women still don't necessarily have bank accounts um so why we've taken the product first approach to then open up bank accounts and give them enough of a use case to utilize that bank account and get comfortable there once they are comfortable with that then we're going to go into more wealth building verticals so add on more on from a savings perspective got it and so and then the and then the 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 data repositories get richer and then you build on top of it but um i think for us it is it has been a very focused approach to scale this foundation get them formally included and then go on to the wealth building side of the products and on the formal inclusion with bank accounts women don't have that cell phone gaps is still there um from your point of view and you know maybe we can start jumping into a bit of the policy side of the conversation where do you see a need for policy whether it's the state bank whether it's federal government policy the need for that to shift to accelerate that inclusion right because oran or any other fintech can only do so much the bigger the biggest lever that is accessible is the government or the state bank of pakistan so from your point of view what are the things that they need to look at and say you know what like it is an abomination that pakistan has uh lower financial inclusion rates for women than india and bangladesh even though culturally these countries are very similar so clearly something's not working and needs to solving for what would you like to see them do um i i'll just add on to that stat a little bit to tell you the the reality of the situation 5% of the entire world's unbanked population actually resides in pakistan which is 
really sad. Um, we, we, we make up half of this country's population and very few of us are finan formally financially included. And that only means just opening up a bank account. But from a policy perspective, I think the regulator is working um, quite a bit in this space. There, there was, there is a gender finance policy that's coming out. Uh, the draft came out last year in December. Um, and we've been able to provide some recommendations on our end of the importance. It's, it's not just a policy change, it's actually a mindset change, right? Like even if the policy gets the policy gets implemented, the gender policy that the gender finance policy that's coming out, um, which has some really phenomenal parts um, to it. But it even if that gets implemented, it's about a mindset shift that needs to happen. You need to realize that a woman requires a bank account and that women requiring a bank account should has nothing to do with her male counterpart. A male counterpart should not come in and give some kind of a guarantee for her to be above 25,000 rupees worth. Um, so things like that are going to change. But I also think from a women in finance perspective, I think we need more leaders out there. I think we do need people more on, on, the, on, the, on the leadership roles, decision makers within financial institutions from a gender perspective, a woman talking about um, a woman building for a woman rather than um, what historically has happened. I think th th that also needs to change. So while there is a policy shift, but um, the mindset shift needs to happen. And I think the banks also need to start realizing the problem is extremely, it's massive and it's only going to hinder the economic growth of the country if you don't start now. We are already way, way too late than our comparable countries, right? Um, so it, it really needs to, but the regulator right now is very, very forthcoming and looking at finance, um, not from a neutral perspective, but an inclusive perspective, which is a very fresh perspective. So I, I have a point of view on this, but I wonder, and you don't have to answer this, but I'm just curious, came in my mind. Um, why is it that you think that banks in Pakistan are not geared towards including more people in the banking system, right? We see like, they're just happy with the way things are with the status quo, whether it relates to online banking, whether it relates to the cumbersome process of opening a bank account, especially if you're a woman, like, why is it that they're just not motivated to onboard more people? Because one would argue that by doing so, a bank in and of itself is making more money and trying to get more revenue and profit in the door, um, but they're not keen and motivated to do that. I was just curious if you have a point of view on why that's the case. I think a, um, the banking system is not researched enough to understand how the customer has matured and what the customer segmentation looks like of the large of an, of an average person outside of their high net worth. They don't understand that, right? And um, banking is still seen as a privilege. I think it's a, both a supply and a demand um, issue, but 
because if I, if from a supply side, it is seen as a privilege. And if I am middle income and I am walking in with 5,000 rupees to open up a bank account, the cost of onboarding me is a lot higher for the, uh, for the bank for to this. It's easier for them to say, and that's the reality. Like when I moved back, I was told that I don't need a bank account. Um, and even today that happens, right? Like if you, if a single woman who is not married, who has uh, no job, try going into a bank, right? And So you were told by a bank branch manager or someone at a bank that you don't need a bank account. We recently did a case study um, and uh, we worked with multiple personas of ours and tried to send them to a bank branch to open up a bank account. And the women um, were told, you don't need a bank account and if you were a business owner then we need to come and validate your business first and see if it's real or not to then be able to open up your bank account um and if you are a salaried individual then why don't you just tell your corporate to open up a bank account for you so um that these are the realities um and i don't think i think while the policy shift will help it is really the mindset shift that needs to happen. It has to come from the leadership of the banking institutes to then say that there is a focus and we need to really um, work towards and give gender sensitivity trainings to our employees to be then able to interact with um, women um, like human beings and let them open up a bank account. Yeah, a friend of mine sent a video clip um, last earlier this week um, and it was basically him asking one of the leading security brokers in the country about why they don't have a more easier process for students that are at IBA or at business schools in Pakistan to open up a brokerage account because he was like, we're learning about finance and we want to start trading in the stock market and apply our skills. Um, so why have you not bothered to like look at us as long-term lifetime customers? And the guy starts with a jumbled answer to which then he concludes by basically saying, well, you know, you all are our students right now, and we don't want you to be distracted from your studies. And therefore, we think that it's not, you know, something that you should be doing uh, is something that you should be doing is focusing on your studies and not trading in the stock market and applying these skills that you claim to have learned. And I would my mind was blown, right, because I went to a business school in the United States in Boston, and we would have every month some sort of financial services institution come in through the doors, whether it's a bank whether it's the securities, a brokerage house, um, to try and onboard us and say, you know what, we're offering these two things to students and we would love for you to onboard, not only just as a customer, but sometimes to test out new products, right? To make sure that they kept up to pace with younger people and their needs and how they in engaged and interacted with technology. And somehow you're right, that mindset shift has not happened in a country like Pakistan at this point in time. Yeah, I, I would add to experiences like my experience as a student. Um, when I went at 18, I was the first in because in Pakistan when I was here, you did not think about opening a bank account at 17 or 18, right? And then you go to university, the first thing that you land in your country and open, it is to open up a bank account. And the ability to get access to credit cards it was so it was it was seamless like it was there there, there was not it was, there was no hindrance i've been here two and a half years now 
I still don't have a credit card. Every time I'm like to for it, it gets rejected that I don't need a credit card and I should be a supplementary to um, one of my male counterparts in the family. And it, it's just really odd. I still use my Canadian credit card in Pakistan because the financial institutions refuse to give me one. And that, that is, that, yeah. that, that's the reality. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I remember getting a Bank of America debit card within the first week of landing in Boston, a week or two after when I got the full debit card in the mail, went back to the bank and they opened up a credit card for me for a $500 deposit that was payable back in six months if I maintained a good credit history. And that was it in total from door to door, from my place to the bank and back home, took an hour. And I, I was a credit card customer, right? And that just is how the financial system should operate. It should be inclusive. It should be geared towards onboarding as many people as you'd like. And I think that's from a policy perspective is also good because then you digitize transactions, you formalize them. People can't evade taxes. There's more data flows about commercial activity. There's just so much more that can happen once you shift from a cash-based economy to one that is based on digital payments and cards. Um, so I hope you know that that things change in Pakistan. I want to switch gears a bit towards sort of your own personal journey. You talked about bank accounts and the issues that you face when you move from North America to Pakistan, but you are also a female founder in a male-dominated society and an even more male-dominated industry. Um, what's that been like for you in terms of navigating these these hallways where that are dominated by men and being a founder and entrepreneur and i just asked this because we had um uh the co-founder of sayat kahani on board and she had a fantastic story about how one of her so someone she was recruiting and interviewing came in and basically asked her Koi aur senior hai baat kar sakta he didn't believe that she was the owner of that institution right and so just was curious from a person level how that's been like on your end um, so I've always been in a slightly male, predominantly male industries, um, always been in the banking space, even in the culinary side of the world that I was in, it was again, very, very male dominated. Um, but I think, I think the, the, the kind of experience that I've had, um, it taught me to be resilient, um, and it taught me to raise my hand to ask for help when I need it. And I think as an entrepreneur, whether it is male or female, um, those two things have been really, really helpful, um, especially when I moved back. Um, when I first moved back, I didn't necessarily have a network, but being able to build that network on my own onus and on my own credibility was tough. Um, but they were, they were, as you start navigating your path, because the ecosystem is still very, very nascent, there are some incredible people out there willing to join hands with you in this journey that you take on, whether it's as advisors, coaches, mentors, um, and, and just that, that, just that will, willingness as an entrepreneur as well, and putting yourself in those um, platforms and saying that, building a company it, it takes a village right it's and as an entrepreneur it's a very very lonely journey and realizing that early on it was it's also my second i'm um, a second time founder so i i had some learnings from my first experience 
Um, and I was able to say, raise my hand and ask for help and build a network um, from a support system, um, which really plays that cushion when things get tough, which is pretty much every day. So um, it's hard. It's, it's, it's a very hard space to be. And there is a lot of glory and there's a lot of glamour around being a startup founder, but nobody knows what happens in the work that goes in, right? Um, it takes a lot of failures. It takes a lot of resist, uh, resilience and persistence, a persistence to be able to say that this is the vision that I want to be able to build for. Um, and I will be able to do it. Believing, having that faith in yourself and in the team that you build. Um, but I, can, I have had multiple experiences like Sarah would have mentioned um, where men coming out and saying, hey, let me help you with your project. The choice of words there and not making my, it's not a project, right? Like them just outright assuming that it's something I'm working as a passion project and it's not a real company. Um, and then they want to be able to help me get my project moving forward at prices that are exuberant. Um, a, a male talent or resource would suggest a price that would just be like, no, that like that doesn't make sense at all. You got you if you go and quote that to a male founder, or a male entrepreneur, they're like, that, that that doesn't fly. Um, and he'll probably kick you out of the room. Yeah, and these kinds of things we see quite often um, um at least in the in the first first year we saw that quite a bit um now i think we've also figured out how that mindset works um and and um have some kind of we're able to navigate in the ecosystem so if it's not necessarily hiring from pakistan then we'll find um resource elsewhere and with covid that has also helped the remote working um, um uh, arrangement so but yeah i think i think it's 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 tough whether you're a man or a female i think it is being an entrepreneur and stuff it's just harder in pakistan as a woman and, and so from that point of view, you know, you said that people look at starting companies or being an entrepreneur as something glamorous. I personally think in a country like Pakistan, that's great, right? Because a new generation, rather than going into working at a bank, a big bank, let's say, or working at a Unilever or an Engro, increasingly they're looking towards entrepreneurship and innovation and trying to disrupt the market. And Pakistan's economy needs disruption. It needs people to have a fresh approach, a younger generation to change things up and, and help the country innovate. But with that, then also comes this sense of entitlement. It's maybe not entitlement, but this perspective that is flawed in terms of what it takes to succeed in as an entrepreneur. So from your experience, your second time founder, um, what are some things that you would sort of, you know, maybe advise to yourself 10 years ago, as you were beginning and thinking about starting a startup or some 18, 20 year old coming out of a, a university who has ideas, who wants to either work at a startup or start their own business. Like what are things that you would say are keys to success or things that they should, you know, learn from your own experience to succeed and excel? Um, I think success is 
different for everybody. Um, and I think um, as, as somebody who wants to start, or if I were to start like at least my first company, um, I would spend more time understanding the problem. I think where we fail, um, I mean, the, the startups that fail um, very early on is they get fixated to the problem that they are, to the, to the solution that they've come up with or the idea that they've had, right? Um, and it's important, while it's great to have ideas, I think understanding where that's stemming from and getting fixated to the problem is extremely critical because if you allow if you are fixated to the problem and that that's the problem you want to be able to solve for um things will come solutions will come you will be more willing to listen to the customer and working with them rather than pushing out your own idea and your own solution um, so I think that is really, really important. And I think the second thing is not chasing money and building a scalable, sustainable business. Um, money will come. Um, but if you are able to understand deeply the problem that you want to solve for and how the customer wants you to solve, um, solve that problem for them, um, I think it just makes it slightly easy and more fulfilling because it is a frustrating journey, right? Like this hundred things will fail on a daily basis and you will have to get up and run the company and face the team and face your board and go fundraise as well. So all of those things will continue happening, but having that conviction in yourself and that, um, um, that, that, deep understanding um, and letting go of a lot of egos. There, there's no room for ego when it comes to building companies. I think that that would be something that I would give um, myself advice for at least the first startup that I was starting out. And I think I learned a lot through that process and applied it here and I took my time understanding the customer and the problem that I want to solve for rather than just jumping into something. Yeah, I think the first piece of your advice is so, so important, right? As you were explaining, like not being wedded to your own solution and looking at the problem holistically, like I was thinking about my own experience over the last three months, we've been trying to write an investment memo for a client with an operational model that we had initially talked about four months ago and built the investment memo around it. How do you make it work? But it just wouldn't work, right? The risks weren't going away. The financial model would not work. The numbers were all over the place. And this week we were having a conversation. We were like, wait a minute, like, why are we continuing to make an operational model work when it's not even solving the basic problem that we're trying to solve for? So go back to the drawing board and make something simpler. And all of a sudden, everything starts working. It's simpler. There's less risk involved. But you sometimes get blinded by the solution you first came up with. And it's hard to let go of that because the more you work on it, the more invested you are and the less likely you become of like, you know, you don't want to look at other alternatives in that sense. Um, so I think that that's really, really good advice. And I think a lot of people get wedded to their solutions very early on in the process. And that's not great. Um, in the last few months, we've seen, particularly in the pandemic, Pakistan startup ecosystem thrive. Money has flowed in. Startups and founders are raising money. SECP, State Bank has played a facilitative role 
to you know energize the sector even more the ecosystem itself is a great sort of close-knit community and there's a lot of camaraderie there which is great to see um where do you see the overall ecosystem going in the next year or two in terms of outlook in terms of your own journey and where do you see potential in terms of Pakistan, which was not on the startup ecosystem map of the world for a number of years, all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's got the attention that it deserves. Yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it's long time coming, right? There's a lot of work that was put in by people like Kulsum, Jihan, um, Mizbah and all of these people really worked hard to create that path for us to be here and, and um, get get the um, the world excited about the opportunity that lies in Pakistan. So um, definitely very exciting times. I think in the next few years, we will see some really, really great companies come out. We've already seen um, likes of Ikea and then Tajir yesterday, the news that came out. Um, so it's 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 a very exciting space. I think more money will flow in, um, and more more opportunities for people who are um, looking to start their own companies and have identified a problem that they want to solve for. It also gives them that slight cushion that I am I, I should be able to take that plunge now right because this is it is in a very exciting time so i think we'll see very some really great ideas we'll see a lot more money coming in we'll also see where the last exciting emerging market left to be untapped um and i think there is there's so much work that needs to happen and there's so much opportunity um while there is opportunity i think along with building for Pakistan, we also need to start building and honing the talent or resources that exist to be able to match the kind of money that is flowing in um, and the kind of companies that we want to be able to build. So I think it is, it's, it, it has to be looked at holistically and we need to identify where the gaps are and really solve for them really, really fast. And I think resourcing and talent is um, one of the bigger gaps that I see in the space at this point. Do you think on, on that, do you see that more of a supply side issue in terms of the skills imparted to talent coming out of universities and colleges in Pakistan, or is it a bit of both where the supply is limited of top talent and then also the top talent either there's brain drain they go abroad or they're recruited by larger companies and there just isn't enough of that you know supply coming in of top talent how do you see the gap like what's the reason think, for this gap i think it's, i think it's both right i think we need to we need to be able to teach the right kind of skills um, very early on and critical thinking is one of them um being able to analyze the situation being able to solve for problems just critically thinking is something that is is um lacking in the overall space um so i think that that needs to be solved for and that happens more on the ac uh, academic side and then even the jobs that they take on in terms of either going for mncs or going abroad for better positions 
that we'll be able to solve for because of the money that's coming in and the kind of compensation the the companies will be able to provide um i think that that compensation piece is solved for but you can't you can't solve for the, the the american dream or the canadian dream or the uk dream right um that is a bit of a mind, mindset shift that needs to happen but i i feel that can also be trained in 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 universities and schools very early on that um you don't always have to work for bigger brands at this point there is enough opportunity um i think also um i don't know if it's a generation thing or what but that sense of entitlement that you talked about earlier as well that exists it's real um and that i think that comes from um just how the ecosystem has operated for so long um and if we're able to do that paradigm shifts from the the on early onset um in 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 academics where we will be able to solve for it but it has to it has to match the pace at which things are moving and yeah, people need to adapt yeah i think critical thinking is such a big gap right i mean not to dive into politics or cultural uh war issues but i don't know if you saw malala's interview in vogue and she's getting a lot of hate on social media about questioning whether marriage is you know why do people have to sign a contract to be married why can't it be a partnership one taken fully out of context but two i read it and i was like i read the whole two paragraphs where she talks about this and i was like this is exactly what you need a 20 something year old to question if a 20 year old is not questioning big issues about life big cultural norms legal norms societal norms they're not going to change the world they're not going to be innovative founders they're not going to thrive at startups they're not going to disrupt the economy or the country in the way that it needs to and you know that that is essential right so it clearly shows she is at least a critical thinker and i think we need to like culturally change that mindset in the country as well where the typical pakistani line that badon se sawal nahi puchte it is so counterintuitive it is so damaging to the prospects of a society when you just say don't ask questions from your elders and i think we just yeah. you're right at a very early educational age if you can teach kids to be critically aware to question things and then engage with them when they have questions and make valid points i think that's the way you progress as a society i also think i think the other thing that um is important teaching them the importance of failure and encouraging and normalizing failure right um there's so much shame around it um and that could also be very very damaging for the ecosystem and if you're always going at a pace without any focus and just running and not getting anywhere it, it can be very very damaging for the ecosystem as well so realizing when to stop um realizing and understanding um that it's it's time is over or we need to pivot or we need to be able to move, look at it creatively or take a step back that also doesn't exist in the um, in the mindset of of the resources and the talents that exist in pakistan but then that that's that's extremely important as well just just the importance of failing and failing fast um and then going at it again yeah i think one thing that's going for 
the digitally native generation, right? Is that there's the internet, there's YouTube, there is everything's available on their fingertips. So compared to past generations, they have access to a lot more information. So hopefully one would hope that they learn faster, better, fail faster, better, and then recover from that. So that's the hope. Um, before I let you go, this has been a fantastic conversation. I always ask my guests to recommend two or three books that have deeply influenced them. Um, so would love your recommendations. It can be on any topic, business, literature, history, whatever comes to your mind. Um, there's this one book that I recently read. I think it's, it's called The Ride of a Lifetime by Bob Iger, um, the CEO of Disney. And I think um, it's, it's a business book. It's very well written, but it resonated with me and it talks a lot about um, the ability to fail and think creatively and stand up again and go at it and win it. Um, so I think that that whole um, Bob Iger's journey of taking on Disney at such critical times and moving into whatever he was able to do. And, and, and now challenging to... Netflix with Disney Plus and like upending the yeah. streaming wars. Um, and then there is, um, I recently read this book called Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a memoir, but he talks about resilience and he talks about how when he had set up his mind to shift characters from being this um in in most of the early movies that he was in um rom-coms to doing something more structured and serious um, and that shift that happened and his journey to get to that and then eventually doing, I think, the Buyers Club or the Bollywood Club. I'm really bad with names. That is Buyers Club, yeah. Yes, that yeah. is Buyers Club. Um, I think that journey um, and the ups and downs, but just the faith in himself and his vision of how he wants his career to pan out and the resilience that it takes. Um, to for really great but not what he wants to do opportunities that came his way and saying no to them um, resonated quite a bit in in the last few months of our journey um, with Iran and as, as entrepreneurs as well right so I think these are the two books uh, that I've recently read and it's um, they've been quite impactful in how I've, I've navigated my path well, I'm going to add these books to my list, especially Matthew McConaughey's one because well written as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and I've always wondered. I've always they, wondered with his acting, like from Wedding Crashers to Dallas Buyers Club and True Detective, like yeah. how does he pull it off? And sometimes I wonder, like, is he mentally okay in his head as he <laughs> plays these roles, right? Because you just, you know, we've seen the example of like Heath Ledger, for example, right, playing the Joker and not ever being able to come out of that tragically. Um, so I'm actually curious to read this book and learn from that fact that, you know, how is someone so good at playing this diverse range of roles, especially the more serious, traumatic characters that he's played, which, you know, emotionally appeal to a lot of people and, you know, make, make people like emotionally aware of what's going on around them. But what is it like for an actor to play those roles? So thank you so much for those book recommendations. And thank you so much for taking out the time. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation and wish you and your team all the best. Um, and hopefully, you know, you get to be 
a disruptive women-led for women bank in Pakistan and you know fill out that gender gap in financial inclusion and transform the economy. So more power to you on that. Thank you so much, Uzair, for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation with you. Thank you, Khudafis. Bye-bye.